Let me invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and as you do so, let me greet you and all those who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. Uh, We are working through 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul's final letter written from prison, uh, just on the verge of his death. So there's a weight to this letter, and it's written to his uh, younger colleague in ministry to encourage him to do the work of ministry faithfully. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ, or rather Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, before you. And we praise you, Heavenly Father, that though we were once rebels, far from you, you have acted on our behalf. Through the shed blood of your Son, Jesus, you have cleansed us of our sin and unrighteousness and reconciled us to yourself. Indeed, Father, you have not only forgiven us, but you have made us your sons and daughters, granting us the privilege of calling you Father. We pray that the reality of our adoption into your family would be a source of perpetual consolation to our weary hearts. We we pray, Heavenly Father, that you who have called us to yourself and to a life of service to Jesus, uh, we pray that you would do what you do and uh, empower us in that service. We pray that through the gospel of your son Jesus, you would bring encouragement to us this morning. You know the state of every heart here, Father, uh, and Regardless of what the particularities of of our struggles are, we believe that the gospel of your Son brings all of us the consolation and hope that we need. And so we pray that you would speak to us through the good news of your Son, Jesus. And if there are any who have grown numb and hard-hearted, unresponsive to the truth about Christ, we pray that through the proclamation of your word, their hearts would be freshly softened. Please, Heavenly Father, move in our midst today. Bring honor to your name and use your word to accomplish your good purposes in our midst. Amen. There's a famous musical, you may have seen it, Les Miserables, and uh, among other things that happen in this, uh, in this musical, there are a group of young revolutionaries, young men, idealistic, rash, as sometimes young men are, and uh, they're, they're fighting for a noble cause. And at one point, one of these young revolutionaries turns to his friend Marius, and he says, Marius, you're no longer a child. I do not doubt you mean it well. But now there is a higher call. Who cares about your lonely soul? We strive towards a larger goal. Our little lives don't count at all. I guess as I read that out loud, it's perhaps somewhat unlike many young men in this generation. 
Uh, but no, that's not fair. I take it back. Um, what, I, what I mean to say is that the characteristic modern posture is one of self-absorption in the past, you know, living for a cause may have been the thing. But what I, what I want to underscore in those lines is this. Where there is a commitment to a larger cause, our own suffering pales in comparison. Do you notice the language? Who cares about your little struggles? Who cares about your loneliness? We're engaged in this glorious cause. And whether or not they're right to feel that way, that's a separate question, uh, what those lines underscore is that when, when something grips our hearts, it, life doesn't, it doesn't matter if we're comfortable, it doesn't matter if things are going well for us. What matters is that the cause is advancing, and that's what gives us joy. And Christianity calls us not only to salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Christianity calls us also uh, to engage uh, in the cause of Christ, to be committed to the advance of his kingdom in the world. We are to sweat, and indeed, as we see throughout 2 Timothy, to suffer for the advance of that cause. We're not just saved, but we are called to a high and holy calling, and all of God's children have the privilege of using their gifts and opportunities in life to, to work for the advance of Christ's kingdom. As one uh, song puts it, your glorious cause, O God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. So all of us have that privilege of engaging in the advance of Christ's kingdom, as well as enjoying the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. But if we are faithful to that high calling, if we are seeking the advance of the kingdom, then what will inevitably happen according to Scripture? Suffering, opposition, and difficulty. This is arguably the, the central thrust of 2 Timothy. Endure suffering for the advance of the gospel. We saw it last week, we see it again this week, and we'll see it uh, even more as we go forward in 2 Timothy. So there is a call to faithfulness and a willingness to suffer for Jesus. But running alongside that theme in 2 Timothy is the recognition that we're not called to contend for the advance of the gospel in our own strength. God supplies what we need. He empowers us to be faithful even to the point of suffering. This morning as we look at our passage, we'll note four commands that Paul gives to Timothy. Number one, be strengthened by grace. Number two, Teach others who can teach others. Three, think. And four, share in suffering as a good soldier. That's where we're going. Be strengthened by grace. Teach others who can teach others. Think, share in suffering. Uh, verses one and two of chapter two essentially summarize what Paul has already said in chapter 1. He has already called Timothy to be strengthened by the power of God, and he uh, re reiterates that. And he calls Timothy to guard the deposit, the good news about Jesus, the, the gospel, that saving message. He calls him to do that in chapter 1. And then once again in uh, verse 2 says to Timothy, make sure that this teaching that is essential to the faith, make sure that you're passing that on. Now, if Timothy is going to do the work of standing for the gospel, communicating it to others, then he has to endure, as verse 3 says, suffering and opposition. And he is going to need more than just his own strength. He is going to need the strength of God. Hence, in verse 1, we are told, be strengthened 
by grace. And the form of the verb, be strengthened, suggests not a one-time strengthening, like you're strengthened once and then you never have to be strengthened again. Uh, The form of the verb suggests a continual appropriation of the strength that comes from God. If we are going to run run the race well and endure, we need to receive fresh supplies of empowering grace. We need to experience the strength of God. So how do we do that? How does Timothy do that? Be strengthened by what? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? One possibility is that the grace belongs to Jesus and he imparts that undeserved goodness to his people to strengthen them. And we often pray this way, Lord, give me grace to be a better father, to work hard, and and so on. And the idea is that Jesus is full of undeserved goodness towards us, and he pours out that grace upon us, and he empowers us to, to live for God. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. We, uh, the Christian life is a matter of continuously drawing on the resources that are ours in Christ Jesus and finding strength in him, and in that strength, being faithful to God. So that's a possibility. Uh, certainly that's a biblical idea that we draw strength from Jesus. However, I don't think that's quite what Paul has in mind. I'm inclined to read verse 1 as a reference to the grace of God the Father displayed or manifest in Jesus. Uh, The NEB translation uh, captures this sort of when it writes, take strength from the grace of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So whose grace? The grace of the Father, which is manifest or displayed in the person and work of Jesus. And the reason I say that is look at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. There Paul speaks of grace, God's grace, which has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's the undeserved goodness of God revealed or displayed in Jesus. And Paul mentions that in chapter 1 to do what? To strengthen Timothy, to encourage him to suffer. And in my view, the same thing is happening again here in verse 1. Paul is saying to Timothy, be strengthened by what? By the undeserved goodness of God displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. As you look at Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished, you will be continuously refreshed to do the work that God has called you to do. The thought then uh, comes close to Acts 20, verse 32. Here the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, pastors, and he says to them, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, or the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the saving message. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, so the gospel, the message, is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How are pastors supposed to find strength and encouragement for ministry? By continuously looking at Jesus, seeing the truth about who he is, believing it, and appropriating the gospel, meditating on it, and as they receive Christ and feed on him and drink deeply from the wells of salvation that are in Jesus, they find continual refreshment and strength to do the work of ministry. 
and so it is with all of us. The message that saves us is the same message that continues to sustain us in our walk with Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's power for salvation, but it's also God's power to refresh our hearts and give us the strength to endure and run the race well. Where are we going to find the strength to face opposition, to face criticism, to face exhaustion? Paul's answer to Timothy and to us, we're going to find it in the gospel. As we drink deeply from the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, as we meditate on that reality, we find that we are refreshed. Nothing saps our strength like sin and guilt. Is there anything more exhausting, joy-killing than a guilty and accusing conscience? Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4. Note, the psalmist writes, When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We all know that feeling. We live in Phoenix. That July sun. You walk from the building to the car and your strength is already evaporated. Right? Uh, that's what a guilty conscience is like. It saps you of joy and energy. And therefore, what a relief. How reviving it is to our hearts to remember that every accusation that our conscience makes against us is answered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Every single guilt, every single bit of guilt, every sin is answered by the work of Jesus. His blood covers all of it. And when you see that, it is healing to your bones. Tim Keller, in a sermon on rest, quotes Judith Sholovitz from The New Yorker. And Judith Sholovitz talks about what is necessary for rest. And she observes, the machinery of self-censorship must shut down too in order to rest. Stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Doesn't that capture it? The eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. You're wrong, you're guilty, you're a sinner, you're not as you should be. You know, that inner voice, that condemning voice. To rest, Sholovitz suggests, to be able to find rest, that accusing voice has to be silenced. And that happens when we look to Jesus, when we see that his once and for all sacrifice is sufficient to take away sin and guilt for all time. The person who believes that finds inner rest and refreshment. What else drains us? Incessant criticism, the disapproval of others, and the self-doubt that comes when we listen to those criticisms. How do we endure that? Where do we find the strength to endure in the face of others' disapproval of us? Well, by remembering that God loves us and that he is our Father. They may frown at us, but he smiles at us, and that is sufficient to strengthen us and encourage us when others discourage us. When we're numb with exhaustion, feel we, have, we don't have any strength left for anything, where do we find the strength to go on? Well, we turn to the God who raises the dead. And we say, Lord, my limits are not your limits. You raise the dead. Impart to me in, in all my exhaustion and weariness the strength 
to persevere, and he does. So we find strength, refreshment, power to run the race by looking continuously at Jesus and appropriating the riches of God's mercy in Christ again and again. It is through drinking deeply from the waters of salvation that we find refreshment for the journey. Now let me warn, encourage, plead with those of you uh, whose hearts have become numb to the gospel. There is such a thing as gospel fatigue, if I could put it that way. You can get to a place spiritually where Jesus and his work and his death and resurrection sounds like a twice-told tale. It's gone stale in your heart. You seek to deal with the heartaches, the heartbreaks, the suffering of life by turning to this, that, and the other. You don't really believe that there is in Jesus all that you need to be refreshed and strengthened. If you have... uh, come to a place where grace ceases to be amazing. And it almost causes you to roll your eyes. Here we go again. Grace, Jesus. If that's where you are spiritually, you are in a dangerous place. And what you need to pray for is that God would have mercy and soften your heart so that grace would be truly amazing again. The first step for you towards spiritual renewal is to recognize that there's a problem, that Jesus has ceased to be beautiful to you, compelling, gripping. Your heart has become hard and cold and callous toward him. And if you see that that's where you are, you need to plead with God that he would freshly soften you and make you responsive to the glories of the gospel. There is no other place we can go to be strengthened. Timothy, if you're going to run the race well and be faithful in your ministry, constantly draw on the undeserved goodness of God in Christ. Second, teach what you've heard from me uh, to others who are able to teach others. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, so the idea here is Paul didn't pass on to Timothy some secret message that only Timothy knew about. This was a public declaration of the faith. Paul is about to die, as I've noted already. He has come to the end of the race. But the truth will never die. It must advance. It must continue. And so Paul says to Timothy, take this deposit that has been entrusted to you. Now pass it on to others who are able to teach. Probably a reference to elders and pastors in the first instance. Pass it on to other pastors who can then teach others who can teach others. The truth must advance. It must go on. And this is basic to the ministry of the church. Whatever else we do, We seek to know the truth, and we seek to impart that truth in all of its fullness and richness to others who will then in turn pass it on to others. This is a way of describing disciple-making. What we mean by disciple-making is helping other people follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means to also help other people follow Jesus or take a step towards Jesus from wherever they happen to be. Faithfulness includes not just your own personal devotional life, not just your own personal growth, but taking initiative to help other people follow Jesus. How do we do that? Well, in the first instance, we do it through the prayerful communication of truth. This is in the first instance, the responsibility of pastors to take the truth and impart it to others. But they impart it to others that they also in turn might impart impart it to others. We take what we've learned from scripture and we seek to help others understand these things for their spiritual good that they in turn might help others. 
As I note, this is not just the privilege of pastors. Scripture is clear that all believers have a calling and a privilege to help their brothers and sisters follow Jesus. And even those outside of the church come to know Jesus. Romans 15, 14 says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. The assumption is that all Christians should be able to have a sufficiently firm grasp of the truth that we can communicate it to one another as occasion may arise to encourage each other, right? That's everybody. That's not, that's not just pastors. We are all responsible for one another's spiritual growth. And one central means by which we help each other grow is through the prayerful communication of God's word. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Take what I'm saying to you and communicate these truths to one another, build each other up. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Who is supposed to admonish the idle? Not just pastors, the whole church. We are all responsible to help one another grow. And again, we do this, and one essential means of doing this is through the prayerful communication of God's word. So are you comfortable deploying scripture to encourage fellow believers? Is this something that you find, find it pretty easy to do? Is it natural? Is your drawing, verse one, right? Is your drawing strength from Jesus? Is it easy for you to turn around and then strengthen others with the same truth that you've received? It should be. One of the areas we want to grow as God's people is in this, in this ability to deploy the word for the encouragement of our brothers and sisters. If, if that seems daunting and difficult, start small. Baby steps are fine. Take a verse from your quiet time that morning and share it with your wife and kids in the first instance. And then maybe share what you're learning and what God is teaching you from Scripture with people in your community group. But develop this habit of receiving truth and then imparting it to others. How else will we, will we be strengthened if not through this communication of the truth? So take what you've learned, Paul says to Timothy, pass it on to others. Now, if we are to teach others something, what does that imply? That we have learned it. And if we have learned it, then we've learned it by thinking about it, right? Uh, naturally. So one essential dimension of faithfulness to God is not simply loving him with our whole heart, but also loving him with our mind. This is often overlooked. Sincerity is important, but it's not enough. We need to think biblically. We need to think. And there is a tremendous encouragement to us in verse 7. That if we do thinking the right way, it will in fact impart light and understanding. God will bless our intellectual efforts to know him if we think the right way. Look at verse 7. I'm going to jump ahead here. Uh, Paul has just given Timothy three metaphors to use in his thinking about the ministry. Soldier, athlete, and farmer. Uh, and then he says, if you want to understand what I'm saying, think. And if you want to understand the implications of what I'm saying, think. Think over what I say, but, he but here's the reason for confidence. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Why will your thinking be fruitful as opposed to futile? Because God himself will give you illumination through the work of thinking. Now we might generalize here and say there are two ways, roughly, Christians seek 
God's illumination and knowledge. On the one hand, on one end of the spectrum, you have believers who say, Lord, give me understanding. Show me the truth and let me see its relevance to life. And they'll flip over the Bible, you know, flip open the Bible to a random spot, find a verse, tear it out of context, read it, and look for light. Right, approach one. Then there's approach two. Take out your commentaries, big stack of commentaries. Systematic theology, concordances, lexicons, multiple translations, and you do a meticulous survey of the pertinent data. And you will, and you will, and you will find light and understanding. Now, which is biblical? Neither. Okay. Neither is biblical. Neither is what verse 7 says. Who gives light and understanding? The Lord. And it doesn't matter how intellectually sophisticated and gifted you are. You will not have light if God doesn't graciously impart it. So we need to engage in thinking and study with humility and dependence on the Lord. We're going to study all day and get nowhere if God himself doesn't impart light. So we pray for light, we depend on the Lord, we walk in fellowship with him, and we recognize that this is an essential precondition for understanding anything. Scripture speaks of those who are always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. That's that's a possibility. And we avoid it by walking humbly and depending on the Lord. Uh, So we don't put our confidence finally in our thinking and study, but in God. On the other hand, those who are overly pious, if I can put it that way, uh, who think that God will just zap them with insight, are also mistaken. God imparts light and understanding to those who do the hard work of disciplined reflection on Scripture. Thinking is necessary but not sufficient for light. You need to think. And intellectual laziness is not justifiable for the believer. Uh, but, But consider the encouragement that this is for us. When you open Scripture day after day and you think and you ponder with humble dependence on the Lord... The Lord is saying, expect that I will give you light. Expect that your understanding will increase. Expect that you will see the relevance of my truth, and you will grow in these things. One of the reasons I think we don't think more is because there's a a sense, perhaps, that it's futile. All this hard work, and who knows if I'll see anything more clearly. Verse 7 says that's, that's unbelief. If we think with dependence on the Lord, we will obtain insight So don't despair, think, but think humbly with dependence on the Lord and through prayer. Think over what I say. Finally, share in suffering. Go back to verse three. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Is suffering optional for the soldier or an essential part of the soldiering task? It's... Essential, that's what I'm going for. Um, If you're going to be a soldier, life will be difficult. There's going to be forced marches. You'll have to set up camp at the end of a long day of work. Uh, You'll have to be away from your family for long periods of time. And then, of course, there's the cut and thrust and danger of battle. To be a soldier is to be perpetually uh, put in a position of hard work or being exposed to danger, every kind of difficulty. Uh, That's not optional. That's deeply integrated into the work of a soldier. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, that's true also for 
uh, those who serve Christ and who serve the church. Uh, suffering is not optional. Suffering is a crucial ingredient in their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He should not expect that life will be easy. He should expect that as he does the work of the Lord well, there will be opposition and difficulties of every kind. And we should know that. The more we follow Jesus, the more suffering, pain, and difficulties we will experience, and that is right and normal. It is to be expected. It is indeed a sign that something is going right, ironically. People tend to interpret suffering that something has gone wrong. Paul is saying just the opposite. No, if you're faithful, there will be hardship, there will be opposition. Uh, that is inevitable. And Paul extends this metaphor, soldier, and he says a soldier doesn't get involved in civilian pursuits. What is the soldier's ambition? To please his commanding officer. There are stories, right, when Napoleon would ride on his horse onto the battlefield, the men would be suddenly inspired, right? The commanders on the battlefield, we want to perform in a way that honors him. Paul is saying that to be a faithful soldier, we have a single-minded focus on the work of soldiering, and we don't get entangled in civilian pursuits, non-military pursuits. We do the work of a soldier. We do what God has given us to do, and we avoid distraction. One of Satan's subtlest temptations is distraction. If he can't get you to fall in some sort of conspicuous, gross sin, he will cause you to be unfruitful by distracting you, causing you to use your time and energy in the wrong way, spending it on things that don't matter, wasting your life, not bearing as much fruit for the kingdom as you could. Do you see this as a spiritual danger and temptation? The possibility of wasting your, your life and not living a fruitful life for Jesus because your time and energy are all over the place? That's the implication of what Paul says about soldiers. If you're a soldier, you need a single-minded focus on the task. Don't get distracted. What are the kinds of things that distract you? How much TV do you watch on a given day? I know that you're not like the average person who watches several hours, what is it, three, four hours of television on a given day. I know that's not you. Um, but seriously, if you had to say, on average, how many hours of TV, how much entertainment you consume on the average day, are you reluctant to say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty, brother. Uh, the fact is, entertainment, the tyranny of the flickering screen, huge source of wasted time, huge distraction. But maybe that's not your thing. What about the pursuit of money? It's possible in the desire for always a little bit more, a little bit more to overwork, to fill in all the little margin time that you have with more work. Are you too obsessed with making money? Is that a distraction? Or perhaps, are you doing good things but not the right things? The world is full of good things for you to do that you could be doing, right? You could be tutoring kids after school, reading to them. You could be taking your, your son to soccer practice. You could be planning a birthday party for your friend. Uh, you could be volunteering. You could do, all of these are good things in themselves, but that doesn't mean that they are the right thing for you to be doing. Are you doing good things that are not the right thing? The world is full of good things, you can't do them all. You have to be selective. And you have to do not just what is good, but what is right. Let me give you an example. Let's say that God has give, gifted you 
as a personal evangelist. You're, you're very good at talking one-on-one to people about Jesus, sharing the gospel, and God has blessed that and has brought a lot of fruit as a result of that. Now, you absolutely should find ways to lean into that. You should do, if you have to choose one night between meeting with someone to tell them about Jesus and going to the uh, building beautification committee at church, such a committee doesn't exist, incidentally, this is strictly hypothetical, right? If you have to choose between one or the other, you lean in, of course, into meeting with an, uh, with an unbeliever and sharing the truth about Jesus Christ, right? Both are good things, but for you, there's only one right thing in that situation, and that is to use your gifts to point people to Jesus. So you can be distracted doing good things, but they're not necessarily the things that God has called you to do. Are you distracted doing good things, but not the right things? Basic to a life of focus and disciplined service to Jesus is knowing your purpose. What has God put you on this earth to do? If you are clear about that, it is much easier to avoid distraction. Uh, David Murray in his book, Reset, uh, recommends reflecting on four major spheres of life. Uh, The family, your job, Christian service, and spiritual life. And writing like a purpose statement for each area. What does faithfulness look like in these areas? And then once you've identified that, Identify some specific goals to aim at in those different spheres. He recommends a three-step process. Plan, no, sorry, purpose, plan, prune. First one is purpose. We've talked about that. What is God's will in these different areas? Set goals for these areas. So, for example, he gives an example in his book of spiritual life. He says, by by God's grace, I will learn how to pray better. Be a goal. Family, by God's grace, I will increase the time I spend with my wife and children. Another goal. Work. By God's grace, I will learn how to manage and resolve conflict at work. By God's grace, I will learn how to teach Sunday school, Christian service, right? So purpose, clear about what God wants of me in these different areas, set goals, and then if they're going to happen, I need to actually plan. So how specifically am I going to reach those goals? If I want to grow, for instance, in my prayer life, then maybe I need to read a book on prayer. And then I need to put it in my calendar, I don't know, 30 minutes a day, five days a week, until the book is read. I need to be that specific and that concrete if it's going to get done. But the idea is I need a basic sense of what faithfulness looks like practically and concretely as a father, as a worker, on a quarterly, monthly, weekly basis. I have a sense of what that looks like, and I'm actively taking steps to do that. Now, if you do something like that, you do sort of a a life audit, if I can put it that way, where you systematically assess what God wants of you, uh, you'll find that you don't have that much margin, right? If you're going to be faithful in these areas, God has called you to be faithful in. And that will enable you to do what he describes as pruning, namely say no to things. However you do it, and this is just one method, but however you do it, you need to be crystal clear about what it is that God wants of you. Because it's that kind of clarity that keeps you from being distracted. So good soldier has focus, is single-minded in his service to Jesus, not easily led astray. And then Paul includes two other metaphors. First one is soldier metaphor, as we've seen. Next one is the athlete. Athletics were a big deal in the ancient world as they are now. There'd be long periods of preparation. And Paul says that an athlete can't win the prize, can't get the crown, if he doesn't compete according to the rules of the game. 
You can't win the game of soccer, for instance, if you don't score goals, right? Victory assumes that you are working and playing within the parameters of the game. So what is he, what is he getting at? Well, if Timothy is to win the crown, he's got to play by the rules. And what are the rules? Suffering. This is, this is further elaborating what he has said in verse 3. Timothy, faithfulness to Jesus involves suffering, and suffering is the precondition for the crown. If you want to win the race, as it were, if you want to receive the crown that Christ has for his people, then be prepared to face suffering, opposition, persecution, accept it, and keep pressing on. What gives a runner the strength to keep going when their lungs are burning and their legs are tired? What gives them the strength to keep running? Obviously, it's the finish line. It's the prospect of hoisting up that trophy. In the ancient world, you would have received a wreath that would have been placed on your head as a sign of your triumph, right? Or a crown. That's what keeps you going. Our Lord suffered in this life, experienced humiliation, but what what was on the other side of that humiliation and suffering? Exaltation and glory. And Paul is saying that that's the same pattern for believers. We might suffer, face hardships of different kinds in this life, but what is there on the other side of humiliation and suffering? There is exaltation and eternal glory. If we're going to run the race, we need to keep that crown in view. 1 Peter 1.17 says, uh, Peter speaks of the tested gen- genuineness of your faith. Uh, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Of course, on that day when Christ returns, he will be honored. But intriguingly, there will be honor and glory for God's people. Their, their rewards, their striving rather, will be acknowledged by the king and we will hear a well done, good and faithful servant. The crown also indicates... If you look at 2 Timothy 4, um, Paul speaks of the crown of righteousness. The idea there is that our salvation will be complete. We will be perfectly righteous, reflecting Jesus. And perhaps Philippians uh, 4.1 suggests, My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Perhaps part of, one aspect of the crown here, the, of, the, of the honor, is taking those lives that you have impacted by the grace of God and presenting them to the Lord, an aspect of the joy that will be experienced on that day. But whatever the precise referent of crown, the point is that keep running, eventually the race will end, and there will be honor for you. There will be the king's well done, good and faithful servant. So keep going, Timothy. It's an encouragement to him. Similar idea with the farmer. Farming is hard work, often tedious work, and there's no immediate payoff, but you labor. And again, hard, the hardworking farmer is another way of describing suffering. You endure suffering because on the other side of that hard work, there is a harvest, a lavish harvest, and you will be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Paul is encouraging Timothy by reminding him of the rewards that God will bestow upon his people on the last day. Your efforts for the kingdom will not go unnoticed by Jesus. There's a crown, there's a harvest, you will be rewarded. So how do we push forward when it's difficult, when our strength is diminished, when we're discouraged? Well, according to Paul, if we just focus on this life, we will lose heart. 
But if we want to run the race to the end with joy and strength, we need to move our eyes from this world to the coming of Jesus. And we need to see like that athlete that there is a crown waiting for us at the end. And as we anticipate the well done, good and faithful servant of Jesus, we will have strength to keep running. Whatever sorrows we face in this life, they will fade when we look into the face of Jesus Christ on the last day. Strength to run the race comes from looking forward and seeing the reward that our king has for us. In fact, as Paul comes to the end of his life, he writes about this at the end of his letter. He says in uh, chapter four, verses six through seven, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Do you notice how the same metaphors are, he now applies to himself? Athlete uh, and soldier. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. At the end of his life, fought like a soldier, run the race like an athlete, and I'm ready to receive what Christ has for me. That's the perspective that sustains us in life's journey. Uh, it will end one day. The semester may be difficult, but summer is coming. And in, in anticipation of summer, we press on. And may the Lord help us to do so to the end. Amen. Let's pray together.